Thank you for joining me, Mark Grixtie, for this invitation to explore deeper together into the divinity, science, spaciousness, and intuition of hurt and healing with awe in trauma. So Caroline, Caroline Strawson, thanks so much for joining me. Really excited to have this conversation with you today. I know <clears throat> our areas of interest cross so much. You know, there's so much we have in common in our fascinations in psychotherapy and healing and interrelationships and all the kind of wonderful things that we've spoken about in the past. So today we can just go wherever we like and uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see where it takes us. But I'll, I'll let you do a. a, a a better and more skilled introduction of yourself. So could you want to just say who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So well, thank you for asking me first off. It's always a pleasure. You know, I'm super passionate about using brain spotting in the work that I do. So um, as you said, I'm Caroline and I'm a trauma informed uh, therapist and coach. And really, I use a real integration of many different modalities all kind of coming together that my crazy brain really brings together in that moment intuitively with my clients. I actually started out as a podiatrist, would you believe? So it was, I was a foot doctor initially. And um, I've always been really interested in the body. Um, and I suppose then it's transcended from the feet upwards <laughs> as time has gone on um, as well. So yeah, trained in lots of different methods, modalities, and really try and bring an element of um, therapy and coaching actually into what I do and a lot of positive psychology. So, you know, one of the things that I'm really passionate about in the work that I do is a term we use in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth, actually finding strength in your struggle. And of course, when I had my struggle, if someone had said, you're going to live an even better life because of this, I'd have probably punched them <laughs> um, at the time because it certainly didn't feel like that. But actually, it does feel like that now. And it's a really lovely place to be realizing that actually what I went through, through um, losing my mom, losing my home, losing my marriage, having no money, all of those elements that at the time it really felt like, really felt like I was at rock bottom. Actually, now when I look back, that was actually the opportunity for me to really recognize what was important in my life and what needed to be healed. And that's really, that set me off on my own self-healing journey and then doing the work that I now do as well, which I'm really passionate about. Mm. Thanks for that. And for bringing yourself into that description of what you do, rather than it be something that's kind of separated and divided off from you. Uh, it comes from you and through you and use that lovely word there. Transcended, you know, that, that things have transcended up and through you. And um, I also hear in there something about the. Some of these messages said to certain people at the wrong time could feel like it's really invalidating, like, oh, don't worry, all this trauma is going to become new strength but it's, it's this is something that's been part of your narrative you've really it is I think you know when we're in the midst of all of that mm. it does feel like you're in this really long dark tunnel mm. and you know when I work with clients I don't even say that in the first sessions you know it, it's not a conversation to have about you know what we're going to get to the stage where you're going to be grateful for all of this it's oh. absolutely not a conversation at that time to have because of course nobody feels like that when you're in it and actually saying that to somebody when they're in it and they're staying in it they would feel a lot of shame because of that then because they think I'm weak I, I I can't do this you know you're better than I am that means I'm not good enough mm -hmm. so I think when you work with people it really is thinking about the language that you're using appropriately so that it it's really important for them to know that the power to heal is within them. You know, that's something I feel strongly about, particularly in the work I do around narcissistic abuse, that we really look externally all of the time to get people to change, to kind of get people to understand. Um, whilst that can be incredibly validating when that happens, it doesn't actually get to the root cause. And I think, you know, one of the things that I like to focus on with people is that root cause resolution, not just symptom management, which is important, absolutely, because we're living a life. And if we're activated, we do need to manage that. But it's about what's the root cause of why you feel like that. And it's just getting curious about that and just, you know, going at that person's nervous system pace to really get and find out what the root cause is. Mm. 
Well, yeah, it's a really, there sounds like really a lot of levels to your work, being able to both affirm, acknowledge and validate where somebody is, to be able to give a sense of insight and education and knowledge around where that might, how that might manifest. But also then there's a deeper emotional, developmental and attachment based work around where it comes from, what it means and the patterns that we kind of find ourselves often within and reenacting. Yeah, absolutely. I tend to think about it when I work with people and in the groups that I do of the adult self first. That's kind of who we work with first. So what's showing up right now and how do we resource? How do we manage that activation? And we look internally for that and externally. Who are you surrounding yourself with? You know, what is your home even looking like? You know, what what pictures do you have surrounding you? Just even little things like that, that can have a huge effect on how we feel. So we almost want to set that foundation first. So it is sort of managing those initial symptoms. And then we want to go really to the younger self. So, you know, that that younger part of you potentially that has interpreted and perceived certain events, parental behaviors, the attachment element of that, that has brought about beliefs about yourself that feel very real to you that then bring parts of you up when that inner child wound is formed and those parts then will show up to try and protect you from not feeling that way so again I do a lot of internal family systems in the work I do so that then we can start to understand okay so in the present we have lots of these parts showing up to actually so let's try and manage those at the moment then when we go back to that younger self why are those protector parts there to stop you feeling that wound what is it about that and it's again this is where the brain spotting comes in I I will do brain spotting around those parts then um, to really start to understand in the body what it feels like what was going on so then we can get to that younger part and really work very very deep then so we can not change the events but change that younger parts experience of those events mm. Mm. and then we move to the higher self once mm. we do that that's when we go to that so it's kind of like adult self younger self higher self let's now we've worked there let's live your best life you know because everybody can do that it's available to all of us you know it's just how do we navigate to get there <laughs> like this um parts work is the way you're describing it is really fascinating and the way you were talking about it there really gives me a sense as well of that kind of the flow and movement between different parts between the higher cells younger cells and now cells all these kind of cells Mm. because sometimes you know doing the deep work and going back into very early attachment wounds and developmental issues and all these kind of complex traumas and things like that of people are so exhausted with their trauma to go in and do that work just feels too much and a lot of the way you're talking about it that the person is actually encouraged to move around and be able to see things from different parts attributes different sides to themselves and that there's a refreshing feel to that movement I'd say yeah I think so I think it's really non-shaming then you know when my clients talk to me and say oh I'm really anxious or you know I'm really angry all of the time it's about reframing that to that a part of you is angry all of the time a part of you is anxious and again a lot of psychoeducation around what anxiety is you know it's that sympathetic trauma response to perception of danger well what's that perception of danger if we know there's no danger actually why does your body and then that part we work on it as a part why does that part then come up to try and protect you from something what is it trying to protect you from you know we talk to the parts we separate yourself from the parts so you know you're not a anxious angry person dissociative person an addict even a part of you is and why is that what does that part think would happen if it wasn't there and starting to have that separated dialogue so we're not shaming the person into thinking that's who they are understanding that there's a part of them showing up to protect them from feeling something that their system thinks would be even more painful to feel mm-hmm. so you know I always see people as parts so if I know somebody is showing up with me where they're 
you know, angry or hurt or even, you know, online space, you see it a lot. And, you know, certainly I see it a lot when my kids come home and tell me stories from their school. I don't judge anybody ever. I just understand, ah, that's a part of them. So it's not, and there's a great book by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey about this, you know, it's not a case of what's wrong with you. It's for what's happened to you, for you to present with those behaviors, those parts that are showing up for you in that moment. And I think that's, and that for me is just so powerful for, and particularly for children to realize you aren't like that, a part of you is like that. And for me, that is, even for me, when I have my protector parts come up, I'm very aware that that's not me. That's some work I need to go and do because I've clearly got some inner child wounds that is hurting in that moment. And my parts are trying to distract and soothe me away from feeling that. Mm. Yeah, just you saying that, I'm just noticing all my parts that are around me now, almost like this room uh, that I'm sitting yeah. in. It's getting quite full up right now. <laughs> I have to show you on that. Now, I know we're, we're on a podcast, though. Cool. People can't see this, but I'm going to show you this. This is what represents my anger part. It's it's a Wonder Woman doll. Oh, and it's very cool. So she's looking wonderful in a blue, long Yeah, robe. she's in this blue dress. I love Wonder Woman. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the first Wonder Woman. And I, totally. you know, she was like an idol for me. As a kid <laughs> as well. So I love all of this. One of the things for me when I was healing from my own um, traumas was I had an incredibly strong anger part and I felt really ashamed of feeling angry so much of the time. I'd kind of moved from that dissociative state. I didn't realize actually then going into anger was a sign of my healing as I was moving through my nervous system. I felt more shame being angry than actually being dissociated all of the time. Because again, from an external perspective, it's more of a mobilized energy that people see. You know, when you're dissociative, you're numbed out and it looks like you are okay a lot of the time to people who don't understand. So when I shifted into that anger part, I desperately wanted people to understand what I'd been through, what it was like to have been married to a covert narcissist, you know, and the more I was trying to get people to understand, probably the more crazy I sounded in some respects. And then their lack of understanding and lack of validation, the angrier I would get. And it was only when I started to do parts work that I could really start to get to know my anger part. But actually my anger part was there in those moments when I felt unseen, unheard, no one believed me. So it was almost like my Wonder Woman was turning to me going, Caroline, don't worry. I know you think nobody's listening. I know you think no one's hearing you, but I do. And I'm gonna shout and get angry and try and get everybody else to understand for you so that let's hope someone will, so you can feel better about yourself. And in that moment, I thought, wow, how amazing are we as human beings that we have these parts that can show up. So when I think now, and don't get me wrong, I still do get angry. I still blend with that part sometimes. But I feel incredible compassion to that part now because I know there's an inner child in there hurting at that particular point. And that anger part, Wonder Woman for me, is kind of like my warrior, my inner guardian trying to protect me from feeling something else. And when I feel like no, there's no voice or anyone's listening, that part shows up for me and it gets angry. Listen, you know, listen to what Caroline is saying. If you're not listening, I'm gonna shout louder. And that for me is really powerful when you can start to understand. And actually now I have a great conversation with Wonder Woman and it's rare that she shows up. She still does show up sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't feel that shaming of myself when it does. I just know there's something going on in me. I'm not looking to others to fix it. I know that it's just something for me, younger part of me needs some reassurance at that stage. Mm. Such a lovely relationship once you have a chance to understand and to see those different parts, why they're there, what they're doing. Mm. And like most relationships, they need work, don't they? They have to be nurtured and each yeah. <laughs> like all of us we need to be seen before we can be in a relationship and others need to be seen by us and what's lovely there is you you've kind of created an ally in wonder woman yeah. because she's being seen in you but she's not being pathologized that's my bad side that's my angry side that's my destructive yeah. side yeah. 
That's the power in me. There's no bad parts. There are only parts <laughs> that are there to try and protect you from feeling something. Their intention is always good. Yes, their impact may be destructive, but at the core of all of that, and like you say, it's not about the pathologizing of everything. Even how I think about narcissism, and I know, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the medicalization of narcissistic personality disorder. Um, how I see a narcissist is an individual with a collection of protector parts because they, they also have a core wound. So they have this collection of protector parts that are abusive. And then we can term those collection of abusive parts an umbrella term, a narcissist, because in the DSM, they list nine traits for a narcissist. Mm. And actually when I teach this, I have over 35 traits of a narcissist that in different elements of their life on an everyday basis, would then culminate into being abused. You know, you can have an anger part, a narcissist can have an anger part, but there's a whole other parameter that comes with that with a narcissist. So, you know, it's it's about that understanding around, you know, our human behavior. So it's not necessarily pathologizing everything. It's it's really understanding, well, why are they there? And And again, you know, from a DSM perspective, it's something that, you know, when I read through the DSM, which I don't often do, I hasten to add, I don't sit there at all oh, Sunday afternoon, I'm going to sit there with a cup of tea and read the DSM. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of look through it and I think I see it as parts. For me, it's like all of these parts that are then listed as the symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then we're labeling the parts as, you know, bipolar disorder or whatever it is. So narcissistic personality disorder. And again, when I teach all of this, we go through actually all the 10 personality disorders from the DSM. And then I get all of my students to go, okay, let's look at this through a trauma informed lens. Now, what could this be caused by? What could that be caused oh, by? And it all comes back to trauma all mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, I wouldn't be interested in the DSM took more of a trauma-informed perspective yes. to these things. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Which it, it doesn't do. But it's a relief hearing you and maybe listeners as well, hearing you talk about understanding what's you know called narcissistic personality disorder from a, a more unblended way yeah. to be able to separate the parts before perhaps bringing them back together or looking at how they relate to each other. Because probably like most people looking through these things, I, I look through the checklists of narcissistic personality disorder and think, yep, me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And I'll get them for all nine or 35. <laughs> yeah, I'm all of those at times. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the key. And this is why I remember when I started stepping into this work around narcissism, to be honest, Mark, I shied away from it to start off with. I thought I do not want to go down that pathway. Everyone's got an opinion about a narcissist. Everyone's ex is a narcissist. Yeah. You know, it was a word that is so overused in some respects. Mm -hmm. And and I thought, I don't know, I don't want to go down that route. Thank you very much. Yeah. But the more clients I was getting and the more people that were coming to me because I was sharing my story of my experiences, I kind of thought I can either sit here and not go down that route, even though I could see a lot of issues around it, or I could try and be part of the change of all of that. Maybe start yeah. to try and educate others in a compassionate way without excusing behavior and just get that element of education and understanding and then power in healing, you know? And, and it's kind of like a pathway that I, I certainly know I went on. I wanted to you know, really understand what a narcissist was, you know, I mean, even before I started my healing process, I probably could have had a PhD in narcissism, because right. I knew everything about a narcissist, because I was constantly reading about everything, because I wanted to find that one sentence, that one epiphany, that would make me realize it wasn't my fault, or that he could change. And I was looking for that. That's what I was driven by because of that trauma bond that happens um, and the addiction to the feelings that I had in that relationship. And when you look then at those nine traits in the DSM, we can all relate. We all have narcissistic traits as well. And this is why when I, when I look at this from a parts perspective, it's about looking at all the different parts then, not just the nine that are listed in the DSM and not just looking at it. it it's like a snapshot, you know, it, it's about the whole life and it's about how somebody feels. And, and ultimately, when we talk about those who are victimized by narcissists, notice I say victimized, not a victim. 
I like to say you are victimized by a narcissist as opposed to you are a victim. I'm always trying to think of empowering those that are victimized. When we start to talk about people as victims, people can start to own that and then stay stuck. So you're victimized by a narcissist. It is trauma. Trauma is what you have. You were abused. So I'm always trying to separate that so that the power to heal is, can't change the abuse, the trauma we can. So I'm just shifting. So that's why I talk a lot about narcissistic trauma as opposed to just narcissistic abuse, because when we just talk about narcissistic abuse, we're talking about the narcissist, really, you know, the abuser. Whereas if we talk about trauma, that's where the power comes from the person to heal, because ultimately narcissists won't change. And again, I know there'll be many people going, yes, they can, they can do that. I'd still like to see the proper clinical research on all of that. I know medication can help, but from a relationship perspective, all the research I've certainly seen, there's never been anything around um, curing or anything that, yes, you can manage certain behaviors, but not where they can then go on and have a healthy relationship, so to speak. But that power then to heal, narcissists won't change so if they won't change if we want to change how we feel that has to come from us now I know my ex-husband has never changed he's still exactly the same as he was then as he is now my reaction to him is completely different now when we first split up and you know when you go through a divorce as many probably listeners possibly have you know you think things you know there's going to be a shakedown it's still a traumatic experience but you know it kind of levels out it doesn't with a narcissist it can actually get far far worse especially when you have children as well and for me however he was behaving because I'd got this trauma bond so this literally chemical addiction to the feelings of being in that abusive relationship I was addicted to feeling like that even though I knew I should not you know, message and that I couldn't help myself. My body was going, no, no, I need to feel like this. And it was like this addiction. So everything then that he would say to me, Mark, I would interpret that as I'm not good enough. I'm worthless. That would cause an immense activation in my body, a trigger, but that didn't come from just my ex-husband. It came from old childhood wounds as well. You know, my ex-husband was just really shining a great big spotlight on my wounds that were already there. So now knowing that my ex hasn't changed, my reaction to my husband now, ex-husband, is not one of, oh, I'm not good enough. And then that sets me in that spiral of activation and my part's coming up then to try and protect me. I see with compassion exactly why he is who he is, that absolutely does not excuse his behavior and how he was with me. But I can now see through a very clear trauma-informed lens that his behavior was not because of me. It was not as a reflection of me. It just was to me. Mm. And that power then to not just know it cognitively, because as I started to heal, I did know that, but feel it somatically in the body so I don't now react you know my nervous system is still very calm it's in ventral vagal all of the time I'm not reacting to perception of danger that he's making me feel a certain way and that's in a lot of work I do we find out what is your perception of danger when you're around a narcissist because actually if it's just words what are those words triggering in you what is your perception of that and that often then goes back again to those attachment, those childhood wounds that we are holding. Thank you for sharing that and, you know, your own experience within that and the way within which you kind of got out of his spotlight or sometimes, you know, the projections of some of his own uh, complexity and trauma onto you, which also then danced with your own developmental trauma if you like and uh, and the two between them then can become very a trauma bond a codependency a kind of uh, have an addiction addictive quality about it which can be so powerful and seductive and beautiful like most addictions uh, despite having a very you know, harmful consequences and I was interested in you know this idea because it's you know 
anything diagnostic certainly be suddenly becomes a little bit left brain doesn't it and we can get into a sense of trying to categorize something that's far too pluralistic and rich and, and vary to be able to do that but what the way you're putting it there perhaps within the description of what you're doing of your journey uh, in relation to your ex-husbands is that you got to a point where you were looking at things like somatic markers, you know, experiences in your body, feelings and authenticity in who and how you are to be able to meet those parts and then to be able to do the work that you've done to, that's been so transformative and beautiful. But what I'm hearing and picking up is that the, the narcissist is somebody who's got uh, this level of complexity and all this perhaps trauma within their childhood might not get to the point where they've developed some kind of trust to take that insight to be able to look at their own failings, vulnerability, vulnerability, pain, somatic kind of presentations, these parts. Um, so you remain within the same addictive patterns of projecting your ills onto somebody else and live in this kind of uh, within a falsity rather than an authenticity that you found in your journey. Absolutely. And I think that's the if you think about that codependency narcissist magnet, so to speak. Again, codependency for me is a collection of parts that show up for an individual that we can classify then as a codependent. Things like, certainly for me growing up, it was people pleasing, perfectionism, high achieving. You know, these were all very much codependent traits that I had, but they were protector parts of that. Again, that we can umbrella term then codependency. I think how I see a narcissist is they are deeply wounded. Again, we know from a research perspective at the moment that there isn't a narcissist gene, so to speak. Again, it's perception of parental behavior when they are a child. And again, we, we don't actually, again, from a clinical research perspective, know why does actually someone then become a narcissist? Because in theory, you can have two parents, two children, one could become a narcissist, one could become a codependent. Uh -huh. We don't actually know fully why that happens we just know it does at this point and from a narcissist perspective and this is how I see it that those deep deep wounds that a narcissist will have because they will they have interpreted again just like I did as a codependent um parental behavior events in their childhood which has then gone on to produce their protector parts and when we talk about the true self so to speak the narcissist protector parts almost become their true self. You can never get beyond their protector parts to get to work on that inner child wound. You know, sadly, if, I mean, not just if I said this to my ex-husband, I think if anyone said that to him, you know, there's maybe some stuff we could work on here from childhood or anything else, you know, it would absolutely be, no, it was because she behaved like that, or no, it's because they behaved like that. There's no ownership or responsibility with a narcissist there is no subjective distress acknowledgement it is always somebody else's fault and again if you are then carrying your own wounds you will receive then their projection from their protector parts going into your protector parts because that means it's activating your wound so what happens in a narcissistic codependent relationship is you know, you're dealing with two adults, both totally blended with protector parts, which at the start can actually be a match made in heaven. You know, that lack of self-worth from a codependent and people pleasing a narcissist, the narcissist is going to have their wounds soothed and they're going to take, take, take. And it's like this match made in heaven as the codependent give, give, gives. And it's wonderful at the start, you know, they're both equally feeding each other's wounds at that particular stage. But what happens then as time progresses, nothing is ever good enough for a narcissist and we call it narcissistic supply. They need a certain level. And if you as an individual aren't then giving them that, they will look elsewhere for that. Their parts will show up to you because ultimately they need something more from you another part of you may then come up and then, then there's this complex dynamic that starts to happen and you know when you're in it you just don't see it because you are so blended with your parts wanting to fix it wanting to make it better you know desperately trying to feel good enough and the more you please the less good enough it is mm -hmm. and 
that's triggering you even more. So you go, you know, even more probably into dorsal vagal shutdown then, you numb out. You know, I certainly think probably for the most of my 30s, I was in what I call functional freeze, that I looked to the outside world that I was functioning, but I was literally numbed out inside, you know, I was being a mum. Um, and that was my sole priority. And that was my life. I wasn't living my life. I was merely existing, trying to navigate, minimizing the pain and hurt that I was feeling being in that relationship. And, you know, and it was really only when we split up, I didn't even realize I'd been in an abusive relationship. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You had to leave it to discover it. I wasn't even the one that left. <laughs> Bizarrely. You know, I always say there's three ways you leave a narcissistic relationship. One, you actually die in the relationship. Now that can actually be from suicide because that has happened. Or it can be you're so dissociative about everything that you stay with that person forevermore, knowing whatever they're doing or anything else, you are just that numbed out, that in shutdown, you stay in that relationship. The other is you manage to crawl away you manage to just about feel safe enough to leave the relationship and the other is they leave you and that was the one that happened to me our marriage hadn't been right for a very very long time um but for me having those I'm not good enough wounds with I'm not breaking my family up that would mean I'd be a single mom I my kids would be from a broken home and the shame of that that would be even more I wasn't good enough than staying in the relationship you know breadcrumbs of love in the relationship were better than no breadcrumbs of love being out of a relationship feeling judged by society as a single mom and a broken home and this is why when people are in these domestically abusive relationships and narcissistic relationships we shouldn't be ever judging them because people only do what their system feels is the safest to do And very often those who are in domestically abusive relationships or narcissistic relationships, which is domestic abuse, they feel safer in the relationship. And who are we to judge somebody on doing that? And actually, from the perspective of friends and family who know maybe they've got someone who they know is in an abusive relationship, if you keep on saying to them, well, just leave then, you know, just get out. And then they don't because they actually feel safer staying what they're doing is they're making that person in that relationship feel even more shame. Well, I'm even not good enough now. I'm even weaker now because they're telling me to go and I'm not. Mm -hmm. And actually that isolates them even further. And, you know, we want to be able to understand that anybody in any situation is because their system thinks that is the safest place to be. And actually from a leaving a relationship like that, Mark, more murders and homicides happen in the first seven days of leaving a domestic abusive relationship. So safety to leave has to be a priority and that can't be rushed, you know, and and there's many, again, many complexities to that. Fear and safety is so, so important and intertwined into all of this aren't they and there's the fear of being murdered within seven days after you leave and of course that fear is also isn't it on the back of the other person's fear of being left alone yes of being abandoned of my you know and the greatest fear we have even though we may not be consciously aware of it you know even from the moment of birth is that we need to be loved and looked after to survive and that never stops throughout our life. We need to feel that. And the, the, the situation you've described now, if I stay in this relationship with a narcissist, I'll get breadcrumbs of some kind of relationship, something I could call love, which I need. Because without there, the fantasy is that there's nothing. Without nothing, I perish. Right. Yet I'm also losing the love of my loved ones that can see from my outside that this isn't a loving relationship. So you kind of get caught between this horrible, fearful place of of abandonment and, and and aloneness which is our greatest heartfelt fear isn't it and, and I think of that in terms of the narcissist as well as I know you're very mindful of and very aware of their parts rather than that they've come to this earth to be monsters and to terrorize people I know you don't ever subscribe to that at all but this 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 kind of you know just as get the, that, that relationship between attachment and authenticity and if I can be an attachment I can survive But if I'm authentic, then my attachment figures that maybe traumatize themselves and full of stress 
and they see me express myself growing up, my pain, my fear, my hunger, my need for a cuddle, my want for security, my guilt, my shame, all those things. If my attachment figures cannot hold that and will punish me for that, I very quickly learn that I cannot be authentic in myself, in my body. I have to develop this grandiosity, this way of coping, this kind of maybe this idealized idea of who I am, which probably does fit with this DSM ideas, you know, preoccupation with fantasies of success and power and all these kind of things and create this narrative. But it's so far away from authenticity because I cannot face my pain. And then that by the time I'm in my 20s, 30s, 40s, this becomes how I'd be as a narcissist in relationships. You cannot get near me because I, I've learned not to exist. Absolutely. It's not good enough to be you it's unsafe to be you mm. uh, you'll be judged you might you know as a kid you might have been hit for being you you might have been silenced for being you you might have been shut in a room you might just have been unloved for being you some a parent who's unemotional you know you'll you learn that it's not safe to be you and i just yeah that's a lovely thing we and just just thinking about the extent of that and how that feeds into things uh, whether we, if we've got that level of complexity growing up with stressed, traumatized, unavailable, yeah. neglectful or abusive parents. And then, you know, we're so we're more susceptible to that. But I just just stepped back. I was thinking just before we spoke, I thought, oh, I really want to find out about this stuff. And for me, my head keeps going to other places. Recently, I was reading Wounded Leaders, um, Wounded Leaders by Duffel. I don't know if you've seen it. British Elitism and the Entitlement Illusion. And it's a really beautiful book, Caroline, and uh, ties in very much with what you're saying, but kind of draws back in, in a kind of sociological kind of way. But it says that all of our leaders that we have ever kind of had, and certainly in our country, we're in the UK right now, but we could think of our cousins overseas. And, and there's not, it's not too difficult to think of certain leaders that might fit into this, um, <laughs> this framework. <laughs> but all of our leaders seem to come from this place where their early attachments have been replaced by caregivers and that's often in the elite schooling systems which we understand and know are full of all sorts of abuse and um if not abuse abandonment and neglect so our leaders are kind of going into this and trained into narcissistic wounds of having to be the best the greatest the wonderful you know with all those things of narcissists uh, and to be able to see themselves and their growth and development is central to their world which is perhaps the only world and then these become the leaders that then infiltrate and the rest of society with these kind of values that we look up to so it's just fantastic how we have this kind of in our cultural fetishism towards egocentricism narcissism and this kind of self-indulgence from the top down and we lost the sense of a wider collective understanding of love and empathy I, know, I, I agree and I think their protector parts in some respects that they then present as yeah. are very good for going into those leadership roles because you know it supersedes maybe other people who have other wounds other parts then that are showing up that maybe don't move move towards those I put a post actually on Facebook the other day how many leaders do you think are narcissists and it was just really interesting reading the responses from all of them <laughs> to some of them to it was just really again just really interesting seeing all of that because you know, to have that sense of drive to really get to some of these highest levels, yeah. you're going to be dealing with a lot of other people who have a lot of wounds as well. And really, you have to be a certain way to navigate your way through all of that. And, you know, narcissists can be very, very good at navigating their way through all of that, because they are so driven. And almost the more they get activated, the more they step into that role of grandiosity and entitlement and leadership in some respects like that, which then other people see as this strong leader, so to speak. And it's only sometimes, again, where you can take a step back that you can see all of these different complexities and dynamics of an individual who's in that role, that they are driven by their own need not to feel something else and that's and, and that then can become a, a leader you know um in the world mm. as such as well and i think they're the types of narcissists that most people think are narcissists those ones that are driven 
I always think the most dangerous types of narcissists are what we call covert narcissists. You know, the ones who act like a victim in all of that to get a need met, so to speak. So, you know, they're almost the ones that are harder to spot, you know, a community narcissist who is covert as well, you know, who is maybe in religious sectors, who maybe is that person who's, you know, in the charity sector and that, you know, they're doing it for their own gain and getting the adoration, but then behind closed doors in their relationships, they're very abusive. And I see a lot of this in my community, you know, positions of power, like, you know, the police, for instance, there's many in my group whose ex-partners are in the police or who are pilots or who are doctors who are in these really high powered positions of power as well. So, you know, they are constantly getting praise and, you know, um, told how good they are in the work that they do, which feeds their supply. And then they go home and then they're in these abusive relationships with the person that they're with. But then how does that person then go and say, my partner's a narcissist or my partner's abusive when they're in the police or they are a respected doctor or a respected, you know, in the community. And that can make it really, really difficult for people. Oh, this is fantastic and beautiful, isn't it? Because this brings another layer of inauthenticity. At least with Donald Trump, you can see what you're getting. (laughs) And there's a kind of a kind of a, a, an authenticity in that he's perhaps not sophisticated enough to play the game and just goes for it but you can see through it and whereas others seem to have this really this beautiful tapestry of disguise that is very difficult to read into and I know is kind of gaslighting is a, a lovely term that's I'm still unpacking that term it means so many things doesn't it but gaslighting you know this kind of sense of confusion and discombobulation that when you're around a person like this but what I love is this what it comes back to because you mentioned those other professions and I was thinking all right bring it home bring it back to psychology well so what psychologists have done and, and our, our friends in psychiatry and not because we all come from a similar yeah. kind of place uh, traditionally um is really want to help and heal and look after communities so what we learned to do not so long ago is to take all those people with addictions and stuff like that to stuff them all in a massive institution to lock them up to have them queue i worked in an institution that we have 20 30 40 people from a ward queuing up and the nurse would brush each one of their teeth with the same toothbrush one after another as they queued up amongst other things that happen in this area is that Things. you're not even good enough to have a toothbrush for yourself horrifically shaming and a lot of these people in, in one of the learning disabilities facilities i worked in a years ago been put in there because they'd had a child out of wedlock often after being impregnated by their own fathers and things like this but they were pathologized shamed and then treated in this way but but my point this is professional narcissism isn't it this is professional covert narcissism where we're there to help everybody and help everybody heal Yet the medical model, <clears throat> in many, many cases and examples of, uh, of abuse that are continuing today, pharmacological as much as anything else, are narcissistic ways of being able to say we're doing a great job of healing everybody whilst using very toxic and controlling approaches to do so. Correct. And I think, you know, you can often see professionals, and this can be done intentionally and unintentionally too, where you know, professionals can gaslight people they're working with as well because of pathologizing things, medicalizing things, and not looking at the person and the root cause of things. Again, just looking at the presenting behaviors. Um, and yeah, I, I just think in our society today, we we do want to label, and I know in some respects I'm labeling a narcissist, so to speak, but hopefully not in the way of the narcissistic personality disorder. It's, it's a softer approach an umbrella term because I think sometimes labels in the right context can be very soothing to those who are in that situation as well because that can start to be well it's not my fault then but I think that whole element of you know the psychology side of it you know that that for me was a lot about the brain-based element of this almost the academia around it and when you mentioned actually Mark around gaslighting and everything for me gaslighting was when I was in my relationship being told something where you know that he was looking me in the eyes telling me something 
and yet my body was saying this isn't true mm. but ultimately me overriding my body to then believe or sit with and continue in that relationship then so gaslighting for me again it brings that whole cognitive somatic element into things cognitively if I've got my husband telling me something and constantly telling me something or and if I'm questioning it he's not then answering the question but getting angry and saying oh you're so sensitive not actually addressing the question but the way I'm asking the question and then in my body it not feeling true that trust element you start to numb out and that's when you really start to dissociate as well because then you switch off your body literally you don't feel in your body so again from the psychological perspective and again this is from a healing when you work with people many of them once they're out of relationships and this could be from their parents as well you know narcissists can come in any format once people start to come out of them and recognize that cognitively they kind of know they're good enough cognitively they kind of know it's not their fault but they still can't move past that and that's when we have to start to look at the trauma that's locked in the body then um, and then start to really work in the body to process all of that so we can kind of connect the cognitive and somatic elements because I think you know from a psychological perspective of course it's really important to understand and we can do a lot about how the brain works and psych education with clients but to, for me to really heal what I had gone through, I needed to work in the body. You know, I needed to process that. I kind of knew cognitively a lot of these elements in the end, but, but that kept me stuck. I couldn't get beyond then. If someone was going to make me feel not good enough, my body would react again and I would go into those responses in my body. So I, for me, the deeper healing came from when I started to do that somatic work like brain spotting and really working in the body that's lovely and the way you describe it there it also feels like a relief sometimes you know cognitively we can do laps and circles and go round and round and round and think and know and think again and think another level and it's eternal isn't it how we can continue to try and construct and formulate and yeah, get a grip of something <laughs> and we do that don't we we, we go around but but with you um, and obviously the people you're working with, it's in the body, which is where the actual healing resides. And you, you're taking them into that kind of, you mentioned earlier, that kind of intuitive sense of something to be able to listen to your internal wonder woman and to be with her is where the healing can happen. But that sounds like, and I love the, what I love about this kind of work, that's less hard work in a way you don't have to be in psychotherapy forever going round and round and round and round and round in your head about abuse and you know feeling in a uh, locked in a victimized place yeah. the body's got a innate healing within it if you can meet it right absolutely and giving that space <clears throat> you know i just think it's so wonderful when i work with a client to give them space to feel to feel what they repressed in those moments those events and and actually just giving space for the body to heal. And it's so powerful, you know, because often people will come in, particularly the clients I work with, they, they come in and I start working with them. And at the start of the session, it's like, you know, it's like, boom, we're really front part of brain. You know, they are telling their story. And, you know, and I will say to them, you know, if I interrupt, please excuse me, you know, I just really want us to slow this down. And as we start to slow this down, you can watch, you know, you see the body language changing and everything else. And, and I see it so many, so I say 99% of the people I work with around narcissism, normally within 30 minutes, they are crying literally because they're allowing that space then to feel to actually mm. feel in our safe space as the relationship with you know client and therapist and that can be so validating that it's okay to cry it's okay to feel this is you know I'm not going to judge you for that I'm here with compassion and we're just going to work together with that and allowing that space because they may never have had that even you know some have may have had bits but to have that and to see them then go from blah, 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 talk 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 to just kind of in their body which you know can be activating for them as well but to hold that and just trust that and to go with that yeah it's just so 
beautiful to see. Well, you're doing beautiful work, Caroline, really beautiful work. And I think, you know, for me, in, in, in my experience, not your, the, the, I haven't got the experience you have in working with narcissism, but the experience I've working with other issues and trauma, um, it's that that you bring that love that and that <clears throat> not just acceptance, because it's not even like you're you're having to have the power to give permission, but this the 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 vulnerability that comes forward and the way you can hold that lovingly and carefully and beautifully is where the healing lies. And often our vulnerabilities are portal, isn't it, to the higher spiritual self and our higher healing. And I just loving everything you said today, you know, and I know we're coming towards the end, but loving everything you said and you bring yourself, you turn up, you know, I can see that you turn up for your people and you turn up in your body and you're not turning up off a protocol or off a map of something you turn up in a relationship, which is something we're all so fearful of losing. And I just love you and I love your beautiful work you're doing and, and all the people you're touching along the way, the professionals and, and the, the, the people that are also doing the work. And we're often the same thing. I say professionals and, and clients, we're the same thing, aren't we? But, um, and the way you've explained it today has really been rich for me. I'm gonna be thinking about this a lot. We may have to do a, a follow-up <laughs> on this at some point if you're up for that, Caroline. Absolutely, yeah. No, yeah, it's you know we could sit here all day and talk about it, couldn't we? Yeah, um, we will. And and your beautiful podcast and your book as well. I'll put links below as well so people can get to that. But um, you remind me the the title of your of your book because it's something I'm going to read for sure. Divorce became my superpower. Right, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, because I I genuinely think it did. It was a catalyst for me to go in and really work on my own inner wounds. You know, so, um, yeah, I feel it, it was part of my journey. And whilst at the time, obviously, it felt very traumatic, but actually it allowed me to stop. It allowed me to go within and it allowed me to really look at myself, which was very painful, I have to say, but so rich and worth it in the long run. Love everything you've done and the way it's just been such a transcendental experience, as has this podcast. So thank you so much, Caroline. Look forward to next time. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. And if you're curious to find out more about this guest of the show, then please see their links below. Thank you for joining me for Awe in Trauma. Until next time. Bye-bye.